Good morning. It's good to be with you this morning. Kurt Parker, we're going to be done all of that so we can do this. We've set, our, set the stage for us to be able to be in the Word and be ready to receive it and to understand it. And so I'd like you to turn, if you would, to 1 Timothy chapter 3, a continuing study in 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus, instructions for the church for teaching, leading, and equipping. In particular, as we got to chapter 2, guidelines for public worship. And now here at the end of chapter 3, the charge to the church. So open your Bible, if you would, uh, together with me, 1 Timothy 3.14. Last week, we jumped into this section, just really began to introduce it as we also shared that time together in a, a time around the table as we celebrated communion and that, that sweetness of that. And so this passage represents Paul's passion for the church, uh, where he calls the church to proper conduct and confession. I'd like you to read together with me the section under our study. It's our desire to finish chapter 3 today. So let's look at it. Verse 14, I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I am delayed, I write so that you'll know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh, vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. And here as we look at verses 14 through 16, it really gets right down to the basics. It really affirms what is most elementary to the church. And we pointed out last time, it seems to be a planned point as the Holy Spirit carries Paul along here, because he is at the very end of the first three chapters, just before the last three. They're in the middle of the letter and we always remember that it is a letter. It's written to a pastor of a church, not unlike this one, not unlike the tens of thousands of churches around the world. So it's just as relevant and important for us as it was for this first century church that read it in their congregation. And so Paul gets halfway through the letter and he comes to this point, and it's really a turning point, the very core and three brief verses, and they are to remind Timothy what is at the heart of the church so that he can tell the church, these things. And he starts it this way. He says, I'm writing these things to you, and this is going to include everything he writes to Timothy. Everything he writes to Timothy is to impact what happens in the church. And so that covers what's already been written and what still is yet to come, what they'll read later. Then he says, hoping to come to you before long, but in case I am delayed, I write so that you'll know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God. And we saw last time, literally, if I tarry, I write so that you will know. Timothy is the primary recipient of the letter. You will know, literally, you'll be doing what's necessary in the church. Perfect subjunctive, and so it's looking forward to if I write this letter and you do as you should, you'll have exactly what you need. And not only Timothy, but everybody, he says how one, so he brings everyone in, how one ought to conduct themselves. So everyone in the assembly here in Ephesus and on down to us, and that conduct himself is to turn oneself around anastrepho. The understanding is this letter is going to challenge everyone to turn in the right direction. This is how everyone is to behave. So it couldn't be said any more clearly than he's saying it, that this speaks to personal Christian life for sure. And that example is part of each leader's life, as we saw earlier in this passage. All those things have to be true of the leader as an example for the congregation. But that's part of it, but it's more directly speaking to our role, our behavior, our conduct, when we come together and meet just like we're doing right now, inside the assembled church. 
And we saw that that gives way really to the last half of verse 15 where Paul is carried along to, th- to write three illustrative phrases. First one is the household of God. The second one is the church of the living God. And the third is the pillar and support or foundation of the truth. And we saw last time, and I'll just briefly, briefly review that, that um, we've looked at household of God a number of times. We saw that household here is undoubtedly the language for family. It has to do with who you are as a believer. You're part of the family of the church. You are brothers and sisters together, and the church is a family with God as the Father. We saw this last time. Believers as His children, therefore brothers and sisters, and then elders and deacons as we've looked at as we've gone through this leadership section to help carry the family out, help the family will rather carry out the Father's purposes. And that's an eternal relationship. We saw that last time too. Uh, you will always be brothers and sisters together. And we didn't say this last week, but, but it's important to note that as you think about this family, as you think about being children of God, there's certain conduct that brings it to a very high level. Just like in your own family, if you have children, you have rules for the house, you have certain conduct that's required, and you, you require that because that's your family. You don't require it from someone else's family, but inside your family, certain conduct is required. And so that relationship is a very important relationship, and it brings this conduct up to cons- be consistent with who we are. And in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, Here's what Paul says to this church. He says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. There's your relationship, and there's your focus. Be imitators of God, and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you, and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. So, walk in love, just like Christ had as an example to us, walked in love. He who is the firstborn of the Father, we are co-heirs with Christ, we're to act like he does in the house. But immorality and any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. So just like in your house, there are some things that do not happen no matter what, and that is cause for chastening for your children if they do it. It's the same here. Immorality, any impurity, greed must not even be named among you as proper among the saints. You have a position, and these things aren't to be part of it. And then verse 4 says, and there must, not, there must be no filthiness and no silly talk, No coarse jesting, which are not fitting. Not fitting for what? Not fitting for the house. You're not fitting as children of God. Not fitting inside the church. That's the focus. But rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. So let no one deceive you with empty words. Now that's 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 an interesting turn of phrase. He's talking about the household of God. He's talking about the conduct of children inside the household. And then he just says, no matter what anybody might say, if you find that the pattern of your life it resembles the things we just got through saying, understand this, you're not really part of the household, although you may be sitting there. And no matter what anybody might say, coarse jesting, someone who is a, 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 an impure person, covetous, immoral, uh, filthiness, silly talk, um, Oh, those kinds of things are not proper for those who call themselves children. If that's the pattern of your life, no matter what anybody says, these things are the reason why the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, he says, do not be partakers with them, for you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. So again, that's taking the behavior to a very high level because of whom you belong to. So we're dear children of God, we're to walk as Christ who is God walked, and He walked in love, and we're to behave in a way consistent with our family identification. 
We're a family, but that doesn't mean that anything goes any more than it does in your own house. We were formerly darkness, but now we are children of light. That's your reality, your actions. If that reality is actually indeed true, your actions will reflect that. And then number two in this household, this family relationship, it's the church of the living God. And the Bible says that we are the ecclesia, the called out ones. That's called out of, of, the, of the world into a meeting together. This is a great joy and the great glory of assembling together. This is the idea because remember the focus is what goes on on a regular church meeting. So he's focusing on meeting together. And this, of course, doesn't seem to mean that much to some of today's modern Christians who miss the assembly regularly and for just about any reason. But the words are included here, so it's still important to the Lord, just as important as it was in the first century. The assembling of the living God dwelt by the Holy Spirit provides an immeasurable dynamic spiritual encouragement among us, and it's part of what we should do. And that's going to include the teaching of the Word of God. It's going to include singing about Him. It's going to include prayer time. It's going to include fellowship. It includes celebrating the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. It's just so obvious that the household are the called out ones, which is why we have a series of commands in the New Testament, particularly in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25, which commands us not to miss the assembly and to encourage others who are missing it to be here. God knows what his family needs, and he has the right to say what goes on in his house, and he's made it clear that people indwelt by the Spirit of the living God need the real thing. And then, and we point out a lot more there, and if you've missed any of that, or would like some of that background, you can catch up online. And then we saw in uh, number three, those who are part of God's family, those who make up the called out ones, who worship together each week, represent this wonderful description, the pillar and support of the truth. Those terms we went through quite, quite uh, in depth last time. We won't do that again. Just to recall that these are architectural metaphors. The foundation is essential to the building. A building is only as good as its foundation. And so the idea here, because it's focused on the meeting, the church is to be the fixed and secure place where spiritual training can occur. And then that pillar sets on that ground rock, and that pillar, as the church, provides the support of the truth by the verse-by-verse teaching, because the pillars are able to stand upright because of the foundation that they sit on, and just as those columns give the building a structure and longevity and beauty, the church, as that pillar, doing what it's supposed to do, upholds the truth and shows forth the structure and the beauty and the eternality of God because it's set firmly on the Word of God. And we looked at a lot more of that. Truth comes from Him. It's always relevant. It's always timeless. And the only way you're going to be able to be fixed as a support of that truth is to understand it and put it to work because you're here as part of the family. So that all builds on itself. So a very awesome description of the church holds a very sobering reality in the responsibility of the church. It's nice to think about the church as a family. It's wonderful to think about the church as a meeting place where we're supposed to be. It's, it's great to think about the church in architectural terms as a foundation and as a pillar, but that really is a sobering reality because just as the foundation undergirds a building or a pillar and supports the roof, the assembly of believers has been appointed to uphold and undergird, undergird in this world the truth that God has revealed through Christ. That's a divine call to allow God and through His Word to saturate all of life. So that's not only just a call to beauty, it's not only a call to, to an illustration, it's a call to responsibility. So the first charge then, as we looked at it last week, is to the church, and it's concerned obviously with conduct. Because if the church will not conduct themselves as a family, and they're constantly arguing with one another and doing the kinds of things 
that uh, don't look like a family when they're meeting together, and they don't care what they say, and they don't care if they come to the meeting. And so if you don't care what's happening in the meeting, you don't care about the foundation, and it's either non-existent or it's flawed, and so the pillar's leaning one way or another, then it really doesn't matter what the church is charged to say, because that's the next part of this. Because conduct eclipses conversation every time. So you can say whatever you want in the, in the office building or wherever you are as a student. You can say that you're a Christian all you want, but conduct is going to eclipse whatever you say. It's that old Thomas Watson quote, obedience is an excellent way of commenting on the Bible. If you say you believe the Bible, then be obedient to it because that's the best commentary on the Bible. Don't pretend like you know everything about the Bible and then you don't do what it says because that's a terrible commentary on the Bible. That's what we want to avoid. So if the obedience is in place, if the conduct is in place, let's look at verse 16, and Paul's going to go back to the basics again, and he's going to give them what they need to say. Verse 16, by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness, he who was revealed in the flesh, vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. In 1959, Vince Lombardi became head coach of the Packers. It was a struggling team. They'd only won one game in the previous season. Lombardi comes in, team's fortunes immediately changed. They posted a 7-5 record, and Lombardi won coach of the year. His team went on to uh, win five NFL championships and the first two Super Bowls. The thing about Lombardi is he put fundamentals first. Every year at training camp, he's got a new bunch of guys in. He'd begin at the beginning, and he'd hold up the ball and tell the team, gentlemen, this is a football. And Lombardi knew that the will to win was not enough. To perform at their best, his players needed to know that they had prepared as thoroughly as possible to win. So he always focused on the basics, and that meant repetition. And although some of the players were the best in the game, he reviewed basic techniques of blocking and tackling and insisted on intense conditioning and drills. And the same applied to his player's character and attitude. He relied on repetition to instill in every player virtues like hard work and sacrifice and perseverance and competitive drive and selflessness and respect for authority. These, he believed, were the fundamentals of excellence. And in his very first meeting with the team, he said that to that Packers team, quote, gentlemen, we're going to relentlessly chase perfection, knowing full well we will not catch it because nothing is perfect but we are going to relentlessly chase it because in the process we'll catch excellence and I'm not remotely interested in just being good, end quote. I liked that and many of you knew those things and you've heard them before, but Paul was in the same vein. I think we look at exactly the same way as we think about what Paul's doing right here in the middle of the letter. He was deeply concerned with the basics, with the fundamentals, right? Always going back to those things. It's precisely what he does here in the text. Because as you remember, the Ephesian church here had wandered away from true doctrine. And the Ephesian church had wandered into ungodliness and into sin, and the leaders had moved away from that which was most important. And so he starts with the basics of conduct in the church. Who is supposed to lead it? And then what that's supposed to look like, a family, and to meet together, and to what you're teaching so you can be a foundation. Those are just basic, right? That's not, those are not complex things. Those are very basic things. If you remember 1 Timothy 1.5, he had to remind them the goal of our instruction 
is love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Why do you have to say that? Because there was so much going on there in the church that didn't include that. But our goal for teaching time is love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and sincere faith. You just had to go back and track down the basics and say, gentlemen, this is a football. That's what he had to do in Ephesus. And in the epistle from the beginning to the end, he's really speaking to issues, and he's correcting those issues. And in our section, he reminds them that conduct is key. And here he goes back really to the bottom line as corrective as he discusses the very basics of the church. In our section, he started with behavior, and then he moves on to what is to be believed about Jesus. And having stated that the church is the pillar and the foundation of the truth, at the end of verse 15, and as the key part of the foundation of the truth, Paul naturally moves on to the subject of the foundational truth of Jesus, the very basics of the content of the truth. This is what is to be upheld by the church. And the first thing is this. Look at verse 16. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. Now, if you've been here long enough, you know that when we see the word mystery, that means something that was hidden, but's now revealed. And whenever Paul uses the word mystery, he always uses it to reference Christ. He's made clear the before hidden plan of salvation. That's what Paul's saying. So in saying here that the mystery of godliness is great, he's going to present the work of Christ as the key to godliness. But that's just basic, isn't it? Surely we understand that, that the, that the key to godliness is the work of Christ on the cross. We understand that. This is blocking. This is tackling. That's the idea. So you catch this. This is just so astounding. Here we're in the Ephesian church founded by Paul. Three years of his life invested here. Only a few years have passed. And they should have been at the best, really, leading other churches. But what they've begun to do is drift away from the very heart of the message. And the very heart of conduct. And the very heart of leadership. And the point of being together. And that's not hard to do. I was reading a very sad article this week about the Presbyterian Church USA. And it's incredibly meteoric decline. And the reason why it's in decline in a meteoric way is because they've denied all the basic tenets of the faith and have become really a social gathering. And those who are spiritual have left it in masses. But it's also true among individuals. It doesn't take long. If you don't come regularly, if you're not in the Word regularly, if you're not together as a family, you begin to drift. It's not hard to do. So the Ephesian church had to go back to basics. And that's really the essence of Hebrews chapter 5, verse 12. And there are going to be a lot of passages we'll look at today. You can turn there, or you can just listen. But in order to illustrate what we're looking at, we're going to see. He's reminding them in this hymn, which is really what this is, a hymn of the early church. He's reminding them of the basic truths of Christ and holiness that's found in him. And you're going to just be so enriched. But here he says in, in Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews says to the church, he says, for though by this time you ought to be teachers... You have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. Need again just means they've already received it. They've drifted away from it. Now somebody has to come back in and just tell them the basics. Very much like what Paul's doing in Ephesus. And you have some, you've come to need milk and not solid food. You should have been on solid food by now, but now what you really need is milk. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Because of practice, you're together in meetings, you're together in the Word, you're doing the things the Lord has asked you to do, and practice makes you mature. 
Therefore, he says, leaving the elementary teachings about Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and a faith towards God or of instruction about washings and laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And we will do this if God permits. So we can and are supposed to move on from here. But this is the foundation of everything we teach. This is what Paul's going back to as well in the church in Ephesus. And just as a footnote, as uh, this passage appears to be an early church hymn, something that was said all the time, which is why he starts by saying, by common confession. And I love that. It is, it's an adverb we're very familiar with, a present passive participle homologeo, a very familiar word in the New Testament. The first part means the same, and the last part means words. Saying the same words, it's by common confession. That's what the adverb means, saying the same thing. And the passive participle just means it indicates that everyone is commonly carried along to confess this. This is the reality of life in Christ, and everyone is supposed to know this. They should know this. They should, this should come easily to them. It should call back what it's supposed to call back. And this is the thing that he is going to talk about. It's the mystery of godliness. Paul's going to repeat these basics because they've departed from them. It can be easy for a church to do that when it gets involved in many other things. You can be so busy about the things about church that you forget this mystery of godliness and what Christ has done. So to translate it that way, we read it this way. We all say the same thing. In other words, everybody agrees about this. This is by common consent and affirmation, a confession of the whole church, the unanimous conviction of all believers. Everybody agrees on the heart of the Christian faith. It's this, great is the mystery of godliness. Now, I like this, and I like the content, uh, context of this, because the Bible comes alive when you look at context. And I think you're going to think this is uh, pretty interesting. Why did he say it this way? Um, by common confession. But if you go back, you can find this out, but if you go back when Paul is first preaching in Ephesus and a riot starts, it was common with Paul, we go and preach and then a riot starts or somebody would want to kill him. So it's a lot different than modern preaching, right? Who just want to pacify everybody and everybody's happy with being there. Paul goes, Acts 19, 26, and the city's mad about Paul and they say this, you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people saying that God's made with hands are no gods at all. So picture this. He walks into Ephesus, arguably one of the great pagan uh, capitals of the early world, and he just says to them, God's made with hands are not gods at all. Okay? So not a way to make friends and influence people. Pretty much a sure trip to jail. Okay? So he says this, and this gets around. And we see in Acts chapter 19, verse 28, when they heard this, they were filled with rage, Margaret, and they began crying out, that's our words, saying, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So instead of just confessing it, like Paul says, they're screaming it all at the same time. And then in Acts chapter 19, verse 35, the town clerk finally, it's a huge riot going on, the town clerk stands up on something, and he starts to talk, and he quiets the crowd, and the town clerk said, men of Ephesus, what man is there after all, Market?" who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of the image which fell down from heaven. In other words, this is common knowledge. We all say this. Who doesn't know this? So this is in Ephesus. Everybody in the town was involved in paganism. There's this common cry. That's why Paul's there. He's going to plant a church there. And the common cry is, great is Artemis, the image which fell down from heaven. So when you come to our passage and you get this context, and he says, listen, this is the confession of every believer. 
Paul's reacting to the kind of common cry heard throughout the years in Ephesus. The common cry was, great as Artemis, the image which fell down from heaven. Everybody knows this. Paul says, listen, this is what really everybody knows. This is what really everybody could confess. Here's the one thing all believers agree on. Great is the mystery of godliness. Here's a truly great reality, far beyond the cry of pagan Ephesus. And so Paul says, the mystery this wonderful secret now revealed concerning godliness and concerning holiness. This mystery is found in our relationship to Jesus. Jesus revealed a marvelous secret. He's the basis of godliness and market. Paul says everybody knows this and says this. It's like we saw in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 9, as a qualification for deacons. You remember this? Holding the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Part of the, part of the qualification to serve as a deacon is going to have the mysteries of the faith in good conscience, holding them, wearing them, understanding them to the point they impact your life. And certainly it takes in a number of mysteries, but it for sure takes in this one, that the faith in Christ and Christ's work on the cross is intended to produce godliness, not just the facts, but the reality of godliness in the life. So it springs from and is empowered by our relationship to Jesus through repentant faith. And not only is it a mystery revealed, it's a great mystery revealed. In other words, Paul says, great is he who is the source of true godliness, the one now revealed in the new covenant, the Lord Jesus Christ. So, great is the mystery of godliness. Now look at this confession of common knowledge for the truly redeemed set up like a hymn. And I really want us to be reminded of our relationship to our Savior. And I imagine that it will, we will receive the same benefit the early church received as they meditated on each section. As Jacob took you through a series of, of songs today, he really wanted you to meditate on those words. And perhaps you did. And perhaps you worshiped the Lord in the phrases. Perhaps you lifted those up, not just because you knew the words by heart, but because you really wanted to worship the Lord that way. That's the whole point of us being up here. I hope you know that. We pray regularly on, in the morning that we'll be invisible and that you'll see Christ and you'll worship him. That you'll express those things that are in the songs in truth, pondering them on in your own heart. This is exactly what Paul wants the church to do here. He's going to have some phrasing that he wants us to understand and to ponder, and that's what I want us to do. It's what I did this week. It was such a blessing to me personally over the couple of days that I went through these passages, which are not easy to go through and not easy to break down, but so rich when you think about what Paul is calling to mind and why he's having to do it in this church. So he says this. He says, he who was revealed in the flesh vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Six verbs. All the verbs are aorist, passive, indicative. Each one has he who was implied, even though it might be absent. And Jesus is the subject of each clause. Every one, a snapshot of reality. That's what it means when it's aorist passive. It's a snapshot of reality on which our holiness is secured. And we could spend messages, we could spend series of messages on every single clause here. It's, they're just so rich. We won't even come close to exhausting them. But they're rich nonetheless. And you're going to love this. Let's start with the first one. And that's the revelation of Jesus. And Paul expresses it this way. He says, he who was revealed in the flesh. Jesus' appearance in a body. It's the reference to his birth, to his incarnation. It's the first thing he calls the church back to in the basics. The eternal son, the architect and judge of the universe. 
Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, illustrates that so well for us. Let the immensity of this just flow over you in a flood. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Can you capture those thoughts in a moment? No. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible. Not only do we not know everything that was created in the heavens and earth, we certainly don't know what's invisible that was created, do we? And yet he is the creator of all those things. Whether they're thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning and the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything, for it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. This is the one who was revealed in the flesh, okay? You get his preexistence, you get his sovereignty, you get his power, rolled up in summary phrases, everything created. You could have gone on for paragraphs over all things. What's that mean? Everything, all of it. This is the one. The firstborn who was without beginning and without end spoke to the father before he even became a man and said, sacrifice and meal offering you've not desired. My ears you've opened. Burn offering and sin offering you've not required. Then I said, behold, I come. In the scroll of the book, it's written of me. I delight to do your will. Oh my God, your love is written in my heart. So if we understand this pre-existence of Jesus, we ask the same question as Mary did as recorded in Luke chapter 1 verse 35. The angel said to her, although no one can truly understand this, it's so marvelous, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. Did you catch it? The Colossians 1, 15 through 19 is going to come and be in Mary. So it's way better than this, but this illustration probably is the best I can do. It's as if he stood at the rim of the universe and dove headlong past a billion stars through the Milky Way and into the womb of the Virgin Mary where he grew until his birth. It's a thousand times more than that, but it's at least that. That's the very first thing Paul says in the hymn. He's revealed in the flesh. God Almighty Eternal revealed in the flesh. That's what the early church sang. And they sang it and like us, barely touched the hem of that garment. And this is real. This is not Artemis of the Ephesians. That wasn't real. They're deceived. This is the initial revelation of Jesus. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. What a joy that is to even think of that. That that is the basis for our holiness because of the incarnation of Christ. And the second part of this revelation of Jesus, he was, it says, vindicated in the spirit. So he appears in a body and that certainly refers, that's part of it, that's the starting part, refers to his incarnation, but this is the proof of who he was. The Holy Spirit's going to make that clear. He wasn't just a carpenter, a good teacher who met an untimely and unfair death. We understand from Colossians, it was God eternal in the past, one with the Father in the fullness of time comes and has expressed that on earth. But from our perspective, it could have just been a carpenter just doing the work in, in first century, see? And he wasn't just a carpenter or a good teacher, and then all of a sudden he was put to death and was so unfair. Hallelujah. Christ is risen from the grave. 
right? We just, said, we just read that. Romans chapter 1, verse 2, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh. He was the right person, and he came with the right heritage who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection of the dead. Mark it according to the spirit of holiness. Jesus Christ, our Lord. In the same way, Romans 8, 11, But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus, who raised Jesus? The Spirit of God raised Jesus from the dead, dwells in you. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. The great mystery is now revealed. The very foundation and fundamental basis for our holiness starts with His supernatural incarnation and His resurrection. He vindicated Jesus. He'll vindicate you. He'll show that you really belong. You're not just a guy who teaches school. You're not just a guy who flies airplanes. You're not just a guy that stands in the pulpit. You're not just a girl who, who's an attorney. You're, you're whatever. Okay? You're more than that. And at, your, and at the end of your life, the Holy Spirit's going to vindicate you just like he did Jesus. This person belongs to me, and he's going to be raised. She's going to be raised. And I love that. Just in that simple statement, vindicated in the Spirit. That's the Jesus the church has to confess. That's the basics. They revealed him as a Messiah. So the truth of God for which the church is the pillar and support. Don't forget that. Number two, what's the second part of the hymn? The witnesses of Jesus. It says he was, look at verse 16, seen by angels, he was proclaimed among the nations. Mighty angels, earthly nations. One supernatural, the other natural. The angels saw everything. Angels foretold the birth of Christ to Mary and then to Joseph. At his birth, we're told, and we've studied this, the sky was filled with angelic witnesses who sang, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. Seen by angels after Christ's temptation. Matthew chapter 4 verse 11 says, the devil left him and angels came and attended to him. And Gethsemane. As he sweat, as it were, great drops of blood, Luke twenty two forty three 43 tells us, and an angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. Angels witnessed the resurrection and sat by his empty tomb and encouraged the women who came. And in Luke chapter 24 and verse 5, as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, incredulously, no doubt, that his disciples would even show up here. Why would they even come? That's why, he's, that's why the angels say, why do you seek the living one among the dead? It's like, why are you even here? Remember, he told you what he was going to do. He told you he was going to rise. Here you are looking in a grave, and he's alive. He told you the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and crucified, and on the third day vindicated, right? And they remembered his words. And we know that holy angels comforted the disciples as he ascended to heaven, Acts chapter 1, verse 10. And all this is supposed to be recalled by the church as they confess these very basic things. Seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations. And we know right now Jesus is adored in glory by a vast angelic host. And they sing constantly, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise, Revelation 5.12. Did you know that is the background sound of heaven for all eternity? 
that when you arrive there, you will hear that in the background, if we understand Scripture at all, that they continually say that about him without stopping, and I don't doubt that we'll join right in. And we already know what the words are. How about that? An angelic song hasn't been released on earth yet, but it's going on in heaven all the time. Right now, revealed by angels, seen by them. And this same Jesus will return with his angels as our king and deliverer, for Thessalonians 4.16 says. Angels were closest to him. Men were furthest from him. But the wonder of the gospel is that its proclamation and application were not to mighty angels, even though they adored him even though how incongruous it must have been for them when they learned about the plan that the Son of God was going to go to earth and die. Angels long to understand it, but they can't. Men long to run away from it, but the Lord draws them to himself. The angels want to see it. The angels want to talk about it. Men don't want to talk about it, but the gospel's for men and draws them to himself. He pursues them, and not just the Jews, every nation proclaimed among the nations. And heaven sings all about this. They sing another song in heaven in Revelation chapter 5 and verse 9, and they sang a new song. They're going to sing this when the rapture occurs, and all the millions upon millions and uncounted millions of, of the redeemed are there. Worthy are you to take the book and break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You've made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God and will reign upon the earth. It's a whole new song talking about all of the proclamation among the nations as he gets ready to pour his wrath out upon the world. And that leads us right up to the last stanza, if you will, and that's the reception of Jesus. Seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, he was believed on in the world and taken up in glory. So his reception in two different locations. It's called the church to remember this. First, the passage we learn and believe as children, right? But it grows in wonder and it grows in complexity as we grow in our faith. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Believed on in the world. Why? Because God took the initiative to make sure his son was sent to be believed. And then we look at, at John chapter 1 verse 10, which captures what believed on in the world looks like. He was in the world. And the world was made through him. We just read that in Colossians. And the world did not know him. But he came to his own. And those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. God's initiative believed on in the world because God made the initiative God's plan of salvation was effective. Romans chapter 8 verse 29 says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And those he, he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. He came and is to be believed on in the world, and he made sure that it was effective. How could it not be? If you think about the God who is sovereign over all things, how could his proclamation in the world not be effective? Of course it's effective. And God gave Jesus the right to reconcile all things to himself. That's what Colossians chapter 1 verse 20. He has the right to reconcile all things to himself. Having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him I say whether things on earth 
or things in heaven. Again, we're summarizing things that are beyond our thought process. He can reconcile through the peace of his blood on the cross things on earth and things in heaven. Although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, it was effective, wasn't it? Yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death, believed on in the world, in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Indeed, if you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you've heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. I gave you the gospel. You understood what it was. It's effective. Believe on it. Of this church, I was made a minister, according to the stewardship of God, bestowed on me for your benefit, so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. That is the mystery, here it is again, which has been hidden from ages past and generations, but now has been made manifest to his saints. What's the mystery? Christ Jesus, him crucified and rose, Holiness is found only in him. That's the mystery. It was hidden. Now it's revealed. It's all I preach, Paul says. To whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him and admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. Of course it's effective. Believed on in the world. And it isn't just the church of Ephesus that needs to sing that song. The framework of the great mystery, the foundation of holiness, carries Paul's writings in Colossae too. And then that last part of the song proclaiming the reception of Jesus. So he's believed on in the world, and this other reception taken up into glory. I love this. This calls to mind to the church. Acts chapter 1 verse 9. He tells his disciples a bunch of things, and one of them is the purpose for remaining. What is it? To carry the gospel to the ends of the earth. To make sure you spread the gospel out. And after he said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking at him, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going. Behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. And they also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you've watched him go into heaven. The men are there with the angels. It's believed on in the world. They're living proof of that. It's taken up into glory. Another reception. Jesus takes up to heaven. Why is it important? Because it means that God's pleased, right? God's pleased with the work of Christ. Hebrews chapter 1 verse three, uh, one says, and it makes it pretty clear in very simple terms, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers, in the prophets, in many portions, and in many ways, in this last day he's spoken to us, in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. He's the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature, upholds all things by the word of his power, mark it, and when he had made purification of sins, so he's proclaimed in the world, and he reconciled people to himself, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's the second reception. God's pleased with everything that happened. Jesus comes full circle. Christ has come from heaven. He did his manifested in the flesh. He did his perfect work, commanded that those who believed in him declare his name so all people would repent and believe. He ascended back up into heaven. And he's going back there. The Father made it clear from Philippians chapter 2, being found in the appearance of a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him, and bestowed on him a name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow. And of those who are in heaven, and on earth 
and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So then, my beloved, just as you've always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You understand this plan. You understand what happened. God was pleased with what was done. And now he's exalted back into heaven when that second reception. And there he makes intercession for you. And these are the basics. Gentlemen, this is a football. This is blocking. This is tackling. This is the basics of the church. The Ephesian church has to return there. Everybody has to confess this. This has to be common knowledge amongst the believers. Otherwise, we resemble the strong church that once inscribed the words, we preach Christ crucified on an archway leading into the churchyard. Over time, two things happened. The church lost its passion for Jesus and his gospel, and ivy began to grow on the archway. The growth of the ivy covering the message showed the spiritual decline. As the ivy grew, one could only read, we preach Christ. So the church also started preaching Jesus, the great man, Jesus, the moral teacher, Jesus, the example, Jesus, the one who can enrich you instead of Christ crucified. The ivy kept growing and one could soon only read, we preach. So the church even lost the Jesus part of the message. Now we're preaching being a good person and social graces and social justice. And finally, one could only read we, and then the church just became another social gathering. All about we and not about Christ and Him crucified. Completed work is the basis for godliness, the great mystery now revealed. So what is the charge to the church? To get it back on track here in Ephesus and anywhere else it's off track. Gentlemen, this is a football what is it? As Paul finishes the first half of the letter, correct conduct in the church meetings, including the correct kind of leaders who lead in the specific way it's prescribed with qualifications that are non-negotiable as an example to the church. Church coming and meeting together, church as a family, church as a pillar in support of the truth, that's the conduct, and then holiness in the world based on the completed work of Christ. We can confess that with a clear conscience. Because whatever else we do, these are the most needful things. And from there, as, if, as Hebrews chapter 6 says, we move on to maturity. All right? Hope you were blessed today. Let's bow and be dismissed in prayer. Lord, we thank you and are so encouraged by your word. We thank you that the church is still the same. It still needs the same things. Father, we cry out to you as we often do. Certainly as leadership, we do will be the type of church that is modeled on this. We relentlessly force the church to conform to this biblical model. We don't move away in all the busyness of everything that we do away from these very basic things. And Father, I pray that you're working in your word by your Holy Spirit in each of our hearts. You know where we are. You know the struggles that we're having. These things are solved in what we have here. Everything we need for life and godliness. So, Father, I pray that's my first prayer, that we, we will conform in these areas of conduct and confession. And then, Lord, you do as you wish with Berean. Help us to be influential where you want us to be influential. Help us to impact who you want to impact. Let your name be glorified here. Let your Holy Spirit welcome here to work. Let your Son who is here when we're gathered in his name is pleased with what happens. He's our one audience. So, Father, all these things are heavy on our hearts today with joy knowing that all these things apply to us if we've been redeemed. 
We can celebrate all this work that's done, this hymn so simple and yet so complex we can't possibly get our mind around the specifics of it. We're so grateful that you and your sovereignty have accomplished all this work for us. How could you not? How would it not be complete? How could it not be effective? So, Lord, we rejoice in that. We give you praise even in our own hearts today for our salvation, for what you've done, for the work that you've done. Sanctify us in the truth today, Father. Your word is truth. We pray all this in the name of your Son, Jesus, for his sake. Amen.